Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, sister, for the beautiful music. Thank you, everyone, for your singing. The Bible study, it's been a great Sabbath so far. Looking forward to the potluck afterwards. It's great to be here. It's actually, it seems like it's been a, it has been a few weeks since we've been here. We're working on that uh, part of the schedule, so good to see everyone. In the think back in your family over the last, let's say, three generations, yourselves, your parents, your grandparents. How many of you, show of hands, have moved from another country to Canada seeking to build a better life? Whether it was you, yourselves, or your grandparents, seeking to build a better life for yourselves or your or your future generations. Consider why you moved. In some cases, it would have been marriage. In some cases, there would have been political upheaval to escape. We know Brother Chan and Sister Eva escaped, uh, left Poland to escape communism. They've shared their stories with us. We're very familiar with their particular story, how they met at a refugee camp on their way to escape Poland, Jan not knowing where he was going to go. I think he was going to the States, if I remember right. But we remember stories in this specific case of Jan sharing and Jan and Eva sharing them with us, of growing up waiting in line for hours for the next shipment of toilet paper, the next shipment of cheese or oranges that were coming in. Family gathering and people being assigned to go wait in line. Life is not easy coming to another country. Often we hear, and you, you may work with people that have taken jobs below their education level back home. We hear stories of lawyers and doctors who come to Canada and drive trucks or work on a line. But they do so out of love for their family, love for future generations, and they make this incredible sacrifice to ensure that future generations are better off. Maybe not themselves. Maybe they take a step down to do this, but future generations are better off. Unfortunately, now we've got people coming to Canada to take advantage of our very wide open social net and attempting to change our culture into theirs. What we see today is not the same example that we've seen in years past of people coming here. We can think of the Irish potato famine in the mid-40s, mid-1840s, where a whole bunch of people from Ireland fled devastation, and now have set up in various parts of the United States and Canada. Boston is, is very very famous as a landing point for the, the Irish folks. My family, I have a grandfather who came from Scotland and a grandmother who came from the Ukraine and somehow met up in Winnipeg. Uh, there's a huge, popu- a huge Ukrainian population in Winnipeg. Again, fleeing their past to come and build a better life for their for their future generations. I wonder, having not experienced it, what it was like to come to a new country all on your own, not knowing the language, the customs, the culture, trying to figure out a way to fit in, having this dream that at some point 
you're, you're going to build a better life, maybe not, maybe not in time for yourself, but certainly in time for your children, trying to fit in, trying to make your dreams come true. When we consider the general epistles, James, Peter, and John, we consider them as general epistles because they weren't addressed to a specific congregation. We've been going through Bible studies lately. We heard today the, about the Corinthians. For those of you who've tuned in on a weekly basis on Wednesday evenings, we've just come to the end of Philippians. These are epistles by Paul to specific congregations to address specific problems or issues, or in the case of uh, Philippians, the, the Philippian people to encourage them to become better and grow more in the grace and, and mind of Jesus Christ. When we consider the book of James, let's go to James chapter 1. And Daniel, if you don't mind, you can throw the first slide up. That'd be great. James chapter 1, verse 1. The introduction to this letter is from James, a bondservant of God. It's James 1, verse 1. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad, which are scattered abroad. We see here a map that talks about the, what is called the dispersion of the Jewish people around the first century, within the first century uh, A.D. And we can see we've got Jerusalem down in the bottom right-hand corner, and then we can see how they wrap around the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, through Greece, and then up into Rome. James here, this letter that James wrote, is to these folks that had, that had fled Jerusalem, and we'll get into some of the reasons why. But we see how far people from Jerusalem fled persecution. They fled all the way to Rome at that, at that point in time. We consider 1 Peter 1. Let's go to 1 Peter 1. Verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he gets a little more specific now. Daniel, if you can flip to this, the second slide. Thank you. That'd be great. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. We have an example here in a little bit more finer detail of some of those areas that we just read about that Peter wrote specifically to some of the people of God that had fled Jerusalem into various parts of Asia and Europe in the first century. We consider the book of Hebrews. You don't need to turn there. We went through a very in-depth study over the last couple of years in the book of Hebrews. We covered it in extreme detail. We know that this was sent to Jewish converts who in the midst of persecution were considering falling back into their Judaism. And Paul presented a series of cerebral arguments to convince them that everything that they valued actually point, all pointed to Jesus Christ. We won't go into further detail there today, but we can conclude from Paul's, Paul's writing to this group of people 
that we can include this in this subset that I've come to call the dispersion epistles. They're written to Jewish people, Jewish converts, who have fled Jerusalem in the midst of the persecution that was going on by the Roman Empire during the first century. The scattering of God's people was not new to the times of the apostles and the early New Testament church. God's people, more, more often than not, when you consider the timeline of Scripture, seem to have been on the move. Sometimes it was self-inflicted. Sometimes it was God-ordained. Even when it's self-inflicted, God uses it to preach the gospel, to spread his news, to protect his people, to develop, in, in develop the timeline of the Bible. We consider the lost ten tribes of northern Israel. We consider the various empires that we've studied. We consider the quiet time, the intertestamental period, the Maccabean revolt. That was folks that had come back from being dispersed to Jerusalem. When we consider the context of the book of James and the book of 1 Peter, it is, these are more than simply general letters that were passed around in a time of peace, like we get on a monthly basis from uh, Vance in, in, in Texas where he'll send us a letter every month. These are more than just nice little letters that, you know, let's pass these around to the congregations. It's nice. It's a time of peace. Just pass this around. Keep people connected much like may perhaps like we do on a monthly basis with our monthly bulletin that we can connect various churches through this bulletin. The context of the times that these two apostles wrote in were completely different. We discussed context last year in a message where we went through and looked at specific verses and showed how sometimes what we assume them to mean, it's much deeper when you dig back into the context. If you were... On the online discussion this week at the end of the study on Philippians, you'll, you'll note that we did talk a little bit as well about context, how understanding the context of the, that these letters are written is critical in understanding what God intends us to get out of these books. Persecution drove them to leave their homes for safer futures. They had to flee Jerusalem for these parts unknown. They didn't know where they were going, much like Abraham when God told him to leave and he would protect him, here they had to leave persecution. These were not peaceful times James and, people, James and Peter were writing in. Let's go back to Acts 2 for a minute. Acts 2. We've just celebrated Pentecost. And on the day of the first New Testament Pentecost, verse 41, we read, Then those who, were, who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church was at relatively peaceful times 
at this, at this point in time. We know Rome was in charge, but there was, these were relatively peaceful times. God expects this attitude that they were experiencing during the high times to continue through times of persecution. We're going to see that a little bit later. When we read these letters, James and 1 Peter, it's critical to lock ourselves into their setting that they wrote to fully understand what they were really trying to say, why their messages were so important. When we just casually read them and apply them as if they were writing in our time, time of peace where we come and we can meet in complete peace. Next week we're going to meet at a camp out and under the sun and share potluck. This is peaceful times. This is pretty easy. Life is, life is a little difficult, but it's pretty easy. We, we need to dig into and see it from their angle. Put James's glasses on. Put the, the lenses that Peter was looking through to see why he was writing this. When we consider the persecution and the, this, the diaspora, that, the dispersion here that is being referred to, we can sort of get the concept of why these, why these teachings, why he was writing and teaching, why they were writing and teaching in these ways. Let's go back to James 1. We consider the Apostle James. And again, he wasn't as specific as Peter was, but he wrote to the 12 tribes which were scattered abroad. This particular letter was written in the mid-40s by James, not one of the disciples, the, the son, of, son of Zebedee, the brother of John, but the brother of Jesus Christ, the leader of the church in the Jerusalem, and the spokesman for the Jerusalem council you find in Acts chapter 15. This was the James that wrote here. Go to 1 Peter. You don't need to turn there. But considering 1 Peter, he wrote 15 to 18 years after James wrote his letter, the early 60s, and he wrote around the time that James would have been martyred. So as much as the church was in persecution then, Peter's was even deeper because James was, James was killed around the same time that Peter wrote his letter. The first martyr, well, not the first martyr, but one of the, the earliest martyrs here, the writer of James, was martyred, and it was approximately five years before Peter and Paul themselves fell victim to death and would suffer the same fate. So these were incredibly trying times. When we consider, if you just back, maybe back up the slide one, Daniel, thanks. When we consider how far they had to escape they have, we have a nice, easy life here in what we would consider Jerusalem today. And we go about our business. We go about our life. We meet on Sabbath. We get together as often as we can. We have our families around us. We pay a little too much in taxes. There's a little things we complain about, but relatively it's very peaceful. These people had to scatter just to save their lives. Today, what I would like to do is take a look at these two letters, I don't think we're going to get through it all today. In fact, I'm confident we're not going to get through it all today. It may take a sermon or two or three. But I would like to take a look at these two letters that were specifically written to those who were scattered abroad so that we can gain some deeper insights into these letters from these two martyrs that are preserved for us today. These are not simply general church letters that were sent from congregation to congregation during times of prosperity and peace. These letters moved circuitously, underground, and they were the lifeblood of a church under extreme duress. 
the encouragement, the exhortation and teaching contained within these take on deeper meanings when we understand the context. And again, we're not going to get through we're not going to get through both today. In fact, we're not even going to get through all of James, so it may take us a few sermons. But as we consider what we're reading here, consider this. I'd like to leave that up there. Consider that as the backdrop to what we're going to read here. The duress, persecution that they were all under, that they had to flee Jerusalem in order to build their lives. If I could summarize the epistle of James in one sentence, it would be this. We must be prepared for extreme hardship in this journey and resolve to be loyal in love for God, his ways, and his people. If you could break James down, that's how I would do it. We know James to be a practical letter. The, the, the epistle of James is widely regarded as a practical letter. He expounds on the teachings of his brother, Jesus Christ. Expound, and we're going to see how much he expounds on them. His brother and savior. But it's, it's not enough to simply say James is a practical writer. Times were extremely hard, and this was not the time for deep intellectual expositions. We know Paul, in his, he was at a level most of us will never see in his understanding. And his letters and his teachings were at an extreme level of intelligence and the way he w- could work through teaching a doctrine or a- ask a question as he did so often in the book of Romans and then proceed to answer these, these, these concepts. This was a time for practicality. This was a time for encouraging people with the basics, helping them remember how to survive duress and hardship. God's people at this point in time needed practical assurance and encouragement to stay the course. Let's jump into verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. As you read this, James says, I know what you're going through. I'm not writing from some ivory tower at the top of Jerusalem, never having gone through what you're going through. I'm going through what you're going through. So I know what you're going through. And it's not easy. We're not going to sugarcoat this, James says, and pretend that this is easy. This isn't easy. I get it. But knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. How did they know this? Let's go to John 15. One of the last things Jesus told us just before he was arrested was to expect this. That's why James could say knowing this, because you, you should know that this was going to come. You should know that while you're doing this, Jesus told us on his very last evening with us that this was going to happen. John 15 and verse 18. Again, Passover evening, we celebrated just a few months ago. If the world hates you, John 15 verse 18, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. They don't hate you for you. They hate you for me. You follow me, therefore they hate you. 
They don't hate us because we're so special. They just hate us because of who we follow. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Our adversary will have them so wrapped up that it will be their mission to destroy anybody who follows God, who follows Christ. If I had, verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. This happened so that what they know already know, they knew this was going to happen. All they had to do was read. And this happened so that this could be fulfilled. One of the last things Christ told us before he was arrested was to expect this. So knowing this, back to James chapter 1. Knowing this, knowing that this will happen, knowing that it will produce patience, count it joy, he said. Because you get to have what happens to you just like it happened to me. We get to follow Christ right down, right down to the point of being in trial. So knowing this, what should our priorities be? James begins to write about what our priorities should be. Verse 4. Let patience have its perfect work, that you, may be per- that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all ways. Here, the first thing James reminds us is to ask God for wisdom and to do so in faith. The very first thing, as he confirms that he knows we're going through, that they were going through trials, he says the first thing to do is to reach out to God and ask for wisdom. Why wisdom? Why wisdom? Let's go to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs 4. The first thing to do, James says, is ask God for wisdom. Proverbs 4 and verse 1. Hear, my children, the instruction of a father. And give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her. Do not forsake wisdom. And she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. 
So when James, the very first thing he tells them to do is to pray for wisdom, it's because wisdom guides our behavior. Wisdom takes all the knowledge that we've learned through all, those, all these years and helps guide our behavior. And what we're told here through the pen of Solomon is that it protects us. It preserves us. It keeps us because it, it guides our behavior to do the right thing no matter what our circumstances are. So James, to these people that were scattered, reminds them very first, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for his Holy Spirit to guide your behavior, to keep you on the right path. Because it, good behavior preserves and protects. Let's go back to, hopefully you've kept a marker in James. So ask God for wisdom and faith. Continues to go down this road of behavior. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers with the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So we're, we've escaped persecution here, and we're trying to build a better life for ourselves. We're trying to find peace, find a better life. Riches in this world should not divide God's people, is what James is saying. You're going to find rich people. You're going to find poor people. Just to preserve your life and have peace, don't flock, and, and, and flock to rich people for their protection, for all that they can give you. And set aside poor people. God doesn't look at things that way. You can't have your mind changed as you flee and behave any differently than you would have in Jerusalem when right back on the Feast of Pentecost that we read in Acts 2, everybody came together, everybody studied, everybody shared, everybody, everybody helped each other out, brought their, their funds together when, when needed to, and helped, helped each other. So for whatever reason here, James felt the need, because he was going through this, to warn them about dividing the brethren. As you, as you, and again, this is written to the brethren here. And separate, the separation based on riches. Matthew chapter 5. James reminded them, reach out for God, and then reach out for each other. But don't classify, don't, don't, classify each other don't don't favoritize one group over another group for what you can possibly receive from them and again we see this teaching from his savior his half-brother matthew 5 verse 19 sorry matthew 6 matthew 6 verse 19 do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth for moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is a very easy concept to grasp during times of peace. Difficult during times of terror. Because when someone is breathing down your back or there's someone coming from your, for your backside or there's someone trying to harm you, the natural inclination, like we heard about in the Bible study, to 
is to protect oneself and to go wherever the protection can be. And if that is to to cast aside a member of the faith because because they're being persecuted and fall over on this side, James is warning not to do that. James is warning to protect the brethren. Never turn our backs on the brethren. Dropping down to, again, encourage you to, we're not going to read word for word this. We just want to get the concepts that James was teaching here for time's sake. Dropping down to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Don't blame God for your hardships. God is in charge. We follow God's will. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. And it's from the Father of lights. Of his own will, continuing verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So while we reach out to God, first and foremost, and ask for wisdom to keep our behavior in check, and we, as we find ourselves in these situations, we look to build the brethren together, not classify brethren for our own protection. We, we always protect the brethren. We see here that he's telling, let's not blame God for this. Let's not blame God for our hardship, knowing that God is in charge of our lives. Let's go back to Job 42. These lessons from James are practical lessons that they should have known. That's why he said you should have known this, because there's so much example throughout the pages of Scripture. They're Hebrew Scriptures. They're listening to the, the teachings of Christ while he walked this earth. They should know these things. But during times of, of terror, during times of hardship, during times of duress, it was important that James reminds everybody of these things. And we see Job 42. We know the story of Job. Job had a very good life. He was a good man. But he had some issues with pride. He had some issues with self-righteousness. And God used the adversary to go down and make Job a better individual. It took time. We know the struggles that Job went through. And then Job had his aha moment where he figured it out. Where he, of all that he thought he knew, he actually came to understand what God really wanted him to understand. Verse 2. I know, Job says, answering God, that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will, I will question you, you shall answer me. I have heard you, heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job went through an aha moment that James was encouraging the people of the dispersion to remember that God's in charge. Don't blame God for your don't blame God for the trials in your life. Use them to become closer to Him. Remember that all good things come from God. We're not tempted by God. This is a result of the adversary 
trying to pull us down. But again, practical advice here from James in the midst of this persecution. Grow close to God, James is encouraging the the readers of this, this epistle here, but do so especially in trials. Don't be fair weather, friends of God, and only go there when you're in trial, but we stay close to God in good times so that we know he's there during the bad times. Again, this is all about reminding us that while things are good, we need to to be right with God now so that when we come upon our trials, we will be okay. Verse 19. So James has started out this letter, and all letters have introductions. And these first 18 verses are really James's introduction, acknowledging that, you know what, there are trials. I get it. I'm going through them myself. In doing so, remember, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom to guide your behavior so that you do not change while you're going through this. You do not change for the bad while you're going through these things. Maintain the unity of the brethren and don't blame God for your trials. Look, Revere him, look up to him, but do not blame him for your trials. Don't be deceived by blaming him for your trials. So then, verse 19, my beloved brethren, a natural break in the letter to change gears into the practical portion of his letter. So then. So then knowing all of this, everything we've, we've talked about so far, James says, and being reminded that this is what we were promised, that this should not be a surprise, knowing that this is what we were promised, what to do, what to do now. To be or not to be? Godly, that is. That is the question that James has for the reader. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You're going to be going through some things that will test your mettle, that will bring out perhaps your worst qualities, that are going to anger you. You know what? It's not fair. We're not saying it's fair. We're not saying it's right, but you're going to go through them. Don't let that change who you are. Don't start blaming the wrong. Don't start blaming God and the brethren for your trials. Be slow to speak and slow to wrath. Self-control. We see some of the characteristics that we read about today in the 13th chapter of Corinthians. These qualities of God. James is reminding them we need these ever more so during times of duress, is what he's reminding them. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's not enough to play nice in front of everybody and then not act that same way when the rest of the week, the rest of your, your time. Be doers of the word. Don't just hear, do. We're starting to see this practicality, these reminders that James is going through here. That knowing all of what they're going through, it's important how our our behavior reflects our faith. And we're going to dig into that a little deeper as well. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. 
pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We rightfully throw that scripture out a lot about what pure religion is. James wrote this in the midst of persecution. That pure religion, despite regardless of what's going on around us, whether that's the time of the diaspora here or sometime in the future when we may be subject to similar action, never forget that we take care of the brethren, take care of those who cannot take care of themselves, and honor and keep God first and foremost in our lives. And to, cha- to keep our character, to keep the kingdom of God, those righteous white clothing that, that we want to, to, to be given, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Don't let, easy not to let society right now change us. It's, it's pretty peaceful. When we've got this going on around us, it's a reminder, don't let this change you. Maintain, maintain your character. Maintain the character of the mind of Christ. Matthew 26. James here, as we've just read these first number of verses in verse, about verse 19 to 27, there's a difference between appearing righteous and being righteous. And that's critical to one of the lessons that James is, is trying to teach the people there. As you turn to Matthew 26, consider Matthew 23. Those are the seven woes. We don't need to turn there, but consider those in light of James speaking against hypocrisy. And James speaking against appearing one way and actually being another. And consider when Christ dressed down, we're only in chapter 26. Go back to 23 real quick. Consider when Christ dressed down the scribes and the Pharisees. He did so six times by calling them hypocrites. And then one time he called them blind guides. Christ hates hypocrisy. He hates making us, us seem one way and actually being another. We were reminded today, again in the study, about uh, Ananias and Sapphira and how that was, that was the reason they were struck down. Because they brought dishonor to God by appearing one way and actually being another. Matthew 26. God hates hypocrisy. It's easy to conceive now. It's easy to say, you know what? I'll never turn my back on God. I'm so, God, I'm so strong in the faith that I will never do this. Matthew 26, verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples. We need to be sure that we're not so confident as Peter that we don't take it seriously and know that we could deny Christ. And by knowing that we could, we need to be ever ever vigilant not to because Christ hates hypocrisy. And James was, was going through that in his first chapter. Let's go back to James. Chapter 2. Again, no chapter breaks, but the next set of thoughts on James's mind really was this faith and works. And again, this is a topic that Christianity discusses and debates, and James really contradicts Paul according to some, but we know that he doesn't. 
But when we consider this faith and works discussion, you show me your faith by, I show you, I tell you my faith, you show me, we'll get to that in a second. I don't want to misquote it. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. This was written during time of persecution and duress. So consider these critical statements, these, these key teachings, and understand when James was actually making them. And this is during times of persecution. Chapter 2 and verse 8. Again, we're not going to go word for word here. We're going to just jump in at chapter 8, pick up a, a theme here. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And we see here, back to verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised for those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And as he works through here, he again talks about our treatment of one another. And that it's not enough to keep part of the law. It's important that we keep the entire law. It's important that we're always, our behavior always reflects God's law. And our behavior always reflects our love for all of the brethren. That we don't separate classes. We don't talk about the poor and the rich. We don't talk about the Jew and the Greek. We don't talk about the slave or the free. God's brethren are God's brethren because Christ died for all of us. And we honor all the brethren. And this is specifically here references to our treatment of one another. God does not create class systems. It's easy amidst persecution to save your skin by sidling in with someone who can save you, someone who can protect you, someone who can offer you more than others. But 1 Corinthians 12, we just, I just referred to it, but let's read it, 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And as James is leading up to his discussion of faith and works here and talking about how we treat one another, and how, how we do so within the keeping of the law, we now get into this concept of faith and works versus faith or works. Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Notice what it says in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? 
This person says he has faith, but so clearly his actions belie it. His actions show that he, the words out of his mouth may say I have faith, but as I watch him, everything I'm watching says he has no faith at all. He has no trust in God. He has no faith in the brethren. He has no love for the brethren. What we say must match what we do. That's where faith and works comes in. It's not faith or works because it's words and actions. Our words must reflect who we are. Our words must reflect our character, and our actions reflect our character. But someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So someone who actually has faith doesn't say he has faith. He just does. He shows faith. We see here someone with empty faith is the person who talks faith but does nothing. Here, the person who's commended as having faith doesn't say, there's no word, there's no saying. He simply shows his faith. His actions show his faith. You say, I have faith, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will, sh- I will show you my faith by my works. Quit your talking and start your doing, is what James is saying here. And all this in the backdrop of these God's people who fled. Let's go to Philippians 1. And we see Paul had the same message. For those of you who were watched the series of Bible studies this month, you'll note that this verse, verse 27, is the theme of the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. That sounds like it's coming from James. It's, it's, it's the same concept. I can be there or I'm not. James clearly wasn't there. That's why he wrote this letter. But he was saying, show me your faith by, by your works. Show God your faith by your works. Whatever you do must reflect your heart. Again, critical to grasp so we can exhort one another to stay the course during times of trouble. Easy to understand now. It's easy to just say, I'll, I'll be like this. The test will come when we're put to the, when we're put under duress and under trial. And again, we keep coming back to that, that, that statement about how we do that. We, by being together, this, making sure that the body is unified so that we can exhort one another through these times. James 3. James 3. The tongue. So consider where we've come so far, talking about understanding that there's trials and reaching out to God for wisdom to keep our behavior in check, maintaining the unity of the brethren and looking after one another, maintaining our faith in God and not blaming him for our trials, not being and then dropping into 
stuff like not being hypocritical in our actions. We then come to the tongue. My brethren, verse 1, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. Let not many of you become teachers. In the face of this, that takes on different meanings. The apostles were in prison. There was not places to go every week for services, to go to the synagogue or gather in people's church homes. The apostles were writing letters, doing the best they could to, to engage, the, engage the brethren. Be careful when you take on the cloak of a teacher because doctrine is important. Doctrine guides behavior. Behavior shows God where our heart is. And it is important, according to James here, not to, in cases like this, take on the cloak of a teacher when that gift has not been presented and given to you. Teaching is a, is a specific gift from God. And like all gifts, we must maintain, uh, we must use our gifts for the way God intends for us to use them and not take advantage of times under duress to then put upon ourselves a, a gift that may not be ours to use. And specifically here, teaching, teaching drives us back to correct doctrine and ensuring that, that what we learn is correct doctrine. Be careful when you expound scripture to others. This is God's first area of warning when it comes to our tongue. Be careful when you expound scriptures to others. Against the backdrop of this, we can see where doctrine can go awry. We can see where it'd be easy to allow, allow different doctrines to come in to our understanding. But this whole exposition on the tongue, the very first thing James talks about is be careful when we expound scriptures to others because that's a cloak and a mantle that we want to be able to bear before our God. Like the Internet, our tongue can be our most useful tool. The Internet is a great tool. Our tongue is a great tool. It can bless and it can glorify God. It can exhort, it can encourage and teach his people, or it can get us into a heap of trouble. A heap of trouble. Verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men, and have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Our tongue can glorify God or can get us into a mess of trouble. Here, we cannot be doubly minded. We cannot let this change who we are and be one thing to somebody and something else to somebody else. Be God-like and, and Christian in front of Christian people and then act completely opposite of that when no one's watching. And we can see these concepts pulled together in the backdrop of this persecution that was going on. Let's go to Romans 8. Hold your place there. Let's go back to Romans 8. 
being doubly minded is dangerous territory for God's people to walk in. But clearly, a concern for James in the backdrop of the duress that the people were under. Easy for us in our suits today to say, I'm not doubly minded. A little more difficult when your lives are on the line. And important for us, for James, to remind us, to remind the people then not to be doubly minded. And we see Paul covering the same, t- same topic here in verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who live, up to, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be spiritually minded in the midst of all this chaos brings life. But that's because our minds are on, have the wisdom of God, our minds are, are in faith towards God, and knowing that it is not this life that we are worried about that they can do whatever they want to. James is reminding them that they can do whatever they want to them, but if they keep their mind spiritual, there's life and peace. They will be part of the first fruits. Back to James 3. We cannot be doubly minded here. We see that expounded here talking about the tongue and how much good it can do, but if we let it, how much trouble it can get us into. And this double-mindedness is expounded here in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now we're starting to bring all these concepts together here. James is starting to do that. Conduct is reflected in our works and is done in wisdom, reflects that our minds Our minds and our works are in line with where they need to be. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There are only two ways of thinking. There are only two ways of being. Spiritually minded and fleshly minded, as Paul reminds us. Here, it either is from above or it is demonic. Earthly, sensual, and demonic. There are only two ways of being. There are only two ways of thinking. And our actions will reflect where our heart is in that regard. And James is reminding them here in the backdrop of being scattered that they cannot be doubly minded. There can only be, you can only be one way of thinking, God's way or Satan's way. Let's go back to Matthew 16. Again, James expounding on the teachings of Christ, but doing so because the people were in the midst of some heavy trials. Matthew 16, verse 21. 
From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. So his intentions were good, but his mind wasn't right. Christ had to jump in. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Peter wasn't of the way of Christ in his mind here. Therefore, he was of the mind of Satan. There are, it is that black and white for God. We are either reflecting God's truth or we are not reflecting God's truth. Now, for Peter to jump in of good intentions to say, Lord, we'll never let this happen to you. But God said it must happen. So therefore, don't talk like that. That is of the devil. And get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you are not, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So again, there's only two, two ways to think. Way of God, the way of man. Back to James. The fruit of righteousness, verse 18, is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we see this, these concepts here reflected in the writing of James here. We're going to pause here and continue this next time. We, we're far along here. We've only got to through chapter 3. It's going to take another at least one, probably two more messages to, to get through these, this, these dispersion letters, these, these letters that were written by James and Peter to God's people who were under duress, who had fled to try to make themselves, to flee the persecution that was in Jerusalem. And in doing so, God obviously uses their, their persecution to fulfill his prophetic statement about taking the, the gospel from Judea to, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Certainly God used that in that way. But considering what the people were going through, we can see that this is way more than just practical letters. But these are letters of exhortation and encouragement during times of stress. These general epistles are important letters from servants who labored under persecution during times when all of God's people were subject to persecution. I'd like to, one last scripture. I apologize if some of you put your Bibles away. I did say we were near done. I apologize for that. We're just going to go back and read what Andrew had read and see, get a glimpse of where Peter was at. Because remember, Peter wrote 15 or so years later, 15 to 18 years later, James had just been killed. James had written his practical exhortation some years earlier. It was time for another one. The persecution was increasing. It was getting harder. Friends were now dying. Brothers in the faith were now, were now dying. And Peter wrote here, Therefore, gird up your loins, verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conform yourselves to former lusts, as in your ignorance. As you're reading Peter, you can see this is the guy that would chop people's ear off and told Christ, get behind or This is never going to happen. Peter was, Peter was out there. And we can see he, he, as much as he now understood God's ways and was a much more passionate and, and compassionate 
man of God, he still told things like it was. Gird up your loins, up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conform yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Don't revert to your, your former ways. Stay true. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all, all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. This is one of his most direct and profound statements that really captures the overall essence of both leaders in the context of the dispersed peoples. Gird up the loins of your mind. Flip to slide three if you could. What does gird up your loins mean? Gird up your loins is reflected here in how they prepared for battle. This was how they dressed with the tunic. And as we can read here, the tunic wouldn't allow you to do heavy labor or fight in a battle, necessitating the girding of one's loins. We can walk through life normal, but we need to be ready to gird our loins. First, you hoist the tunic up so that all the fabric is above your knees. This gives you the mobility that you need. You gather all of the extra material in front of you so that the back of the tunic is snug against your backside. So you have your mobility, and then there's nothing getting in the way of you preparing for battle, preparing to run, preparing to action. Once the excess fabric is gathered in front, pull it underneath and between your legs to your rear. This feels much like a diaper. Gather half of the material in each hand, bringing it back around to the front. Finally, tie your two handfuls of material together, and you are all set for battle and hard labor. So we go through life like this, ready to do that. So we peacefully, as we are now, come to church in our tunics, dressed in these sometimes uncomfortable suits, but we need to be ready to gird up our loins and prepare for action, prepare for battle for God. Be ready to engage in battle at a moment's notice. Not against each other, not against God, but for God and with each other. We'll continue this the next time I have the opportunity to. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.